Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. Welcome to my show. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. Listen to learn about my right fit method from my guest interviews. The Matchmaking Chef. My guest today is award-winning natural food chef, Rachel Albert Matess, who developed 130 recipes for best-selling author Barry Sears, including 90 recipes for zone meals in seconds. Chef Rachel author of the Ice Dream Cookbook and the Healthy Cooking Coach blog, will share her career journey and passion for matching her mouth-watering recipes to your health needs. Rachel, I know that you became interested in food as a child. Tell us about that. Well, I didn't grow up eating three square meals or many vegetables, and my mother regularly prepared some simple dishes, but she was a working mom, a single mom, and going back to school to get more education, so it didn't leave much time for cooking. So um, really her friends inspired me a lot because she had different friends who taught me how to make different cookies, cakes, pies, pastries, things like that. So um, my mother and her friends really stimulated that, that passion um, for cooking, and I, I still remember to this day the names of her friends and what they taught me to make starting in probably like, I don't know, first or second grade. Oh, that's wonderful. You were lucky to have them. Yeah. So what kinds of things did you learn to do at an early age? Well, I learned to make um, certain cakes and, you know, like I said, cakes and pies, like fudge marble cake and poppy seed bundt cake and brownies and cookies and, and and at first it was working from a recipe a very clear-cut blueprint and then as I got into my maybe probably like seventh grade maybe even fifth or sixth grade I started to take recipes sometimes and tinker with them I would do variations and you know try different things but still working from this basic structure of the the recipe and it, it was just desserts that I played with I really didn't get into baking savory things or you know, or main dishes, but I, I love to play in the kitchen, and I had a lot of opportunity because I lived out in the country and didn't have um, many kids my age uh, in a close distance. So cooking was something I could do, and that could allow my mother to work while I played. Well, that's wonderful. Tell us further about some of the issues, however, that you encountered with your health as a result of not eating the right foods for your body as a child. Well, one of the things, I had problems with hypoglycemia starting in like fifth grade where 
I would eat breakfast and a couple of hours later my energy would just crash and I would have to have a snack or something because I couldn't concentrate at, at school. And I had a lot of cavities at an early age as well. And my mother tried to get me to learn that the cavities were caused by all the candy that I ate when I was a kid by making me pay for my my fillings like with like birthday money for my grandparents. But it didn't really sink in then. And it wasn't really until my teens when I started having acne and a weight problem and you know mood swings and just a lot more issues that a lot of teenagers go through that I started to really be on a quest to learn how to develop healthy eating habits and how to lose weight. And so it was just a journey I was on that was stimulated by those those kinds of issues. Now, while living in New Mexico, I mean, the food is delicious. Um, did that have any impact on your eating choices at all? You know, I don't think it had much much impact. I remember going out to Mexican food, and sometimes I would get tacos, and sometimes I would get a hamburger and french fries at the Mexican restaurant because it was familiar, and I was a picky eater, and, and I didn't like spicy food. So unfortunately, I really missed out on really getting the whole flavor of the Southwest, other than like guacamole and, you know, corn chips or something. I didn't really get into the Mexican food and didn't really appreciate it because I, I had such, uh, I guess, a limited repertoire of what I like to eat in the in the savory food department. Well, when you had the health issues, did you then start changing your diet and creating certain kinds of recipes for yourself to help you feel better? I would say I wanted to, but the challenge I had in high school when I when I knew that I wanted to change my diet and I read and I, I saw that I had the sugar blues and I needed to cut out sugar and fried food and processed food, I didn't know what I would put in my diet if I took out the foods that were making me sick. And my repertoire was, besides desserts, was really like making pizza from a mix or macaroni and cheese or cooking hamburgers or hot dogs or, or something like that. So I would say I wanted to change, but I didn't know how. And it wasn't really until I got into college, took some cooking classes, that I really started to get into natural foods cooking and, and, and learn more. Well, let me ask you about uh, the period in your life when you were a uh, dairy-free vegetarian or vegan for nine years and then you stopped. When, at what age were you uh, a, a vegan? I started making the transition to that my sophomore year of college, and I thought that that would be a healthier way to eat. From what I read, you know, I, I thought, okay, if I just, you know, make this change and, and get in, follow a vegan diet, and it actually started with an interest in macrobiotics that I had kind of picked up from my father when I had visited him, and, and he was into that. So as I got more into that, uh, the macrobiotic approach, then I kind of went vegetarian and then vegan, and it, it was, I look back and it was just part of the evolution I went through, um, but it wasn't a way of eating that was really sustainable for me, and it didn't give me the health benefits that I thought it would. So you stopped? So I stopped, but it was kind of a stop and start because I didn't really do the nine years of the vegan diet in a row. It was like I did it for a couple of years, had problems, had health practitioners recommend I add some meat back. I would do that for maybe a few months, and then because I was kind of steeped in a whole community of friends and acquaintances who ate that way, it was hard for me to break out of it. So it was kind of like a back and forth over a period of maybe 12 years where I kept trying to make it work and then maybe 
you know, three months or six months or a year I would eat animal products. And then I kept thinking if I could just get it right, like maybe I just wasn't doing it right. But eventually I I realized there wasn't anything else I needed to do right except I needed to have meat in my diet. You know, I needed to have some animal products on a daily basis to really get back my vitality. Now, I know you were also, uh, I guess, diagnosed as being sensitive to wheat and corn. How did you find that out? What what did you notice about yourself? Well, there were certain foods, especially wheat and corn, that when I would eat them, uh, my cheeks would turn, would flush bright red, and my ears would turn bright red. I would also get very sleepy after eating them and just, just feel really sluggish and depressed. And I went to a naturopathic physician who um, did some tests and you know came up with a list of foods and the degree of sensitivity I had to them. And so it was recommended that I not eat those foods you know, for a period of time. And some people look at that as like, oh, my gosh, how terrible, you can't eat those foods. But it actually, over time, it stimulated my kind of creativity so that I could learn to cook with new foods and see that I didn't have to have those foods in my diet to make food that tasted good. Now, how old were you at that time? I was in my early 20s. I think I was probably around probably around 22 at that time. Okay. Um, how long did you have the sensitivity, or do you still have it? Um, I don't still have it. I think it was probably a couple of years. It was. What happened was I, it, it took a while for me to learn how to consistently keep those things out of my diet and, and, and really be consistent with, with you know, eating differently. Uh, but I would say over a period of time, making some other changes that supported my health, at strengthening my digestion and my immune system, that then I was able to eat wheat and corn without a problem. But what I found was after a while of not eating them, they really didn't have the same appeal. It was like I could take them or leave them, and it, I didn't feel like I was deprived if I didn't eat them. All right. Now, you lived in Seattle when you were at the University of Washington, and then after you were graduated from college, you opened Rachel's Natural Foods Cafe. What motivated you to open the restaurant, and what did you cook as the head chef? Well, the funny thing about it is I had had, when I was in my, in my teens and, and developing an interest in natural foods, I had said to my mother, someday I want to open my own health food restaurant. And my mother, being the business expert and uh, professor at a university, she gave me the stats about how many small businesses go under in the first year, the first five years, whatever. And I just kind of filed it in the back of my brain. And then in my early 20s, people around me who liked my cooking and came to my house, my apartment for dinner regularly, they wanted a restaurant. I wanted a cooking school. And I let them convince me to open a restaurant because I wanted to do something that that would be more lucrative than what I was doing. So um, so I opened up the restaurant. Uh, business people put up the money, and I put up the energy. And it was mostly vegan. It was a macrobiotic restaurant. There was a little bit of fish. I think that was the only animal product, that and maybe some eggs and the waffles on the, the weekend brunch. So it was a lot of whole grains like brown rice and other grains and, and beans and some sea vegetables. And it, it was basically a grain and, you know, grain and vegetable-based diet um, without, you know, without, with little or no animal products. And so there were a lot of dishes that we made, but they were within the, the confines of the macrobiotic approach to eating. 
So now how did the restaurant go, actually? Was it successful? Did you get tired of it? How did it go? Because working in a restaurant is hard work. It is, and, and back then the idea in macrobiotics was promoted that you should do everything by hand. So we didn't have all the mechanization, all the the equipment that a lot of people would use in, in restaurants, you know, sensibly to save time and make things efficient. And I actually really burned out even before we opened with all the work that led up to You mean you were exhausted before it opened, Rachel? I was exhausted before it opened. With all the, all the, I didn't have a computer then. I did all the food costing by hand, and, and then there was all this cleaning to get it uh, ready and, and all this planning. And, and at that time, I was eating the vegan diet, which had really weakened me. I was anemic, and uh, so I didn't have the energy from the get-go. And then what happened is the people who were the main investors wanted to jump right away into having um, not just dinner, but lunch and dinner. And then they wanted brunch right away. And then they wanted things priced like restaurants in the university district that were mainstream, that didn't have our food costs. So on a financial basis, uh, I would say all of all of us going in creating it really didn't have enough restaurant experience to to price things properly and uh, I, the restaurant lasted about a year and even before that year was up I was just so wiped out that uh, that I kind of backed out and then they couldn't find anyone else to work the hours that I did for the pay and so it ended up closing uh, but I really I see it as a blessing. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm gathering you would never open a restaurant again, am I correct? Yeah, I really have more passion to teach people how to shop, cook, and eat differently, and it's the teach a man to fish. I would rather, you know, share my passion in a way that will empower other people to take responsibility for their health, and then that allows me enough time to take care of mine. What I think is wonderful is the fact at an early age you understood that you were entrepreneurial, but that you didn't really want to be tied down to running a restaurant on a daily basis. Yeah, it was one of those be careful what you ask for because you might get it situations. (laughs) So my little kind of dream when I was in my naive state as a teenager thinking, oh, I want to have my own restaurant. And then I had the chance to have it. And then when I had it, by having it, I realized what I wanted by doing what I didn't want. Well, that's very good because some people continue doing what they don't want and end up getting sick because they don't pull themselves out of a situation that's unhealthy for them. So that you understood in your 20s uh, the right fit for you. And I think that's terrific. Yeah, Going was, for, yeah go ahead, Rachel. Did you want oh, to say more it, about it was, the restaurant? I would say the restaurant, I see it was like a teaching experience for me. <laughs> no, that's good. You mean you, you learned your lesson about what you did and didn't want for your career in essence. Exactly. Good. Now, you left Seattle and moved to Toledo, Ohio. Um, how did changing environments impact your career? I would say moving to Ohio made it much more difficult for me to make a living because I didn't find as many people there who were really interested in natural foods, uh, natural health, you know, taking cooking classes. I felt really trapped there. Like, it just wasn't a good fit. It was the wrong fit for sure. And I wanted to get out, and it, it took a while 
to get really clear about an avenue that my husband and I could get out of there, and then I orchestrated the move and really, really pushed to make that happen because I think if I hadn't, we would have stayed there longer because my husband was in kind of an inertia with his career. What I think is interesting is, again, that you recognized the fit wasn't right, you took charge and made things happen. So, again, I think that's wonderful and really illustrates my right fit method. In terms of Phoenix, Arizona, I know that you've been living there now for how many years, Rachel? It's a little more than six years now. Okay. What benefits have you enjoyed by living in Phoenix in terms of your professional career? I would say moving to Phoenix really immersed me in a food culture where people really value chefs and cooking classes and cooking with fresh and locally grown ingredients. And by my suddenly being thrust into or or putting myself into teaching in these kitchen shops where chefs from fine restaurants were, it really stimulated me to study more and polish my presentation and 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 really to to really dress and look the part of a a chef and it just really stimulated me to bring myself up to a higher level of of expertise and professionalism so that I could be on a par with these restaurant chefs and even do things they couldn't do when you uh had made the decision to move to Phoenix did you understand the culture and expected that this would be the right fit? Did you do the research? Did you visit there? How did you know that Phoenix would be the right fit? Or did you know? I would say I didn't know. I definitely thought it would be an improvement. My husband wanted to finish acupuncture school, and I knew that I didn't want to go back to Seattle, Washington, where I had lived for a total of 12 years. I wanted a fresh start. I didn't want the rain and the gray and for the same reason ruled out Portland, Oregon. And I knew I loved the Southwest and the sunshine from my childhood. And so when my husband applied to uh, a few different schools, he applied to the school here in Phoenix. And I, I really didn't know what to expect, but I knew we needed a fresh start and we had to get out of the Southwest. So I worked on lining up all the things that had to happen so we'd have a place to land when we got here. But neither of us had jobs. We didn't even know anyone personally coming here. So it was definitely a leap of faith, and I just went on that. I mean, and that, okay, you know, (laughs) we're going to make it, and we're going to get out of Ohio, and this has got to be better. Okay. So in essence, you were surprised that – you fell upon the right fit. Am I understanding that, Rachel? Because that sounds like what happened. You you arrived and then you started to explore and determined that it was what you wanted. Am I? Is that right? I think I knew before getting here that that it was what I wanted, and I think there were there were a lot of unknowns, and it was definitely challenging and and stressful to not have jobs and not even have the skills that plug into conventional jobs. But I, I really I didn't know exactly what to expect, and it definitely took a while once I got here to get going. But, but once, once I had some momentum, 
then I knew, okay, this is this is where I'm supposed to be. Do you think you'll continue to live there? Is this something that's going to be a long-term uh, change in lifestyle for you? You know, I'm not sure long-term. I would say right now for the next, uh, you know, at least for the next two, three years, I can't imagine moving anywhere else because I've built such a support structure of friends, uh, a following of, of, of people who know me and, and are you know interested in what I do, and and I love the the weather and and so I just really feel comfortable here and and definitely don't have a desire to uproot at this time. Okay, I know that our listeners are eager to hear about how you create your recipes. You are able to create blueprints of right fit recipes to match people's dietary needs. I think of you as a compounding chef. What you do is similar to what compounding pharmacists do. They use medicines to create the right fits, and you use food. Tell us about the blueprints that Barry Sears gave you for Zone Meals in Seconds and the Soy Zone Cookbook. Well, Barry wanted recipes that were low in calories. They had to be less than 500 calories per meal, and they had to fit his strict parameters, which are 40% carbohydrate, 30% protein, 30% fat. And he used something like like a food exchange system that he calls a block system. And he had a list of foods that were allowed and a list of foods that either were not allowed or if they were used had to be used very sparingly. So I knew his system really well, so I was able to... I was able to think in in his terms, think in these food blocks or exchanges, and and, and then pull together a, a whole slew of, of recipes that fit the program. Let's peek into your kitchen laboratory. How did you actually create the recipes for him? What procedure did you use to determine if your recipes would appeal to thousands of people? Well, first I studied recipes in cookbooks and magazines that, that, that looked interesting and that I thought could be modified to fit his system. And then I also looked in my own recipe archives for recipes that I had known and loved and made for years that I thought I could tweak or put together, kind of like a puzzle, with other, other foods to, to fit into the exchange system. And what I did was I would find recipes I wanted to use, and then I would put them in front of me, and then I would modify them so that they would have the right number of exchanges for the different categories that, that Barry wanted. And, and then I would go into the kitchen and test whatever that recipe was. And my husband and I would, eat, would taste the food, and then we would discuss whether we thought it was great, whether we thought it was good. If it needed improvement, we would talk about what we thought would improve it. And then I would share some of the food with some of our friends, and cooking students. And beyond that, I also sent recipes to people that I knew were willing to test some of them and, and that they would serve them to their families. And, and there were people I knew would be good barometers, and they would give me honest feedback and, and share what they thought about the recipes. Did you get suggestions that really helped you improve the recipes? 
I would say yes, and I would say I didn't have to do a lot to improve them. I think because I had so much experience before then with modifying recipes, writing down what I was going to do before I went into the kitchen, and then if I were making changes while I was in the kitchen to that blueprint, I would always write down what I was going to do if I was going to increase or decrease something or change it so that then I could go back and repeat the successful recipes and also not repeat the things that didn't come out great. So there was a certain methodical methodicalness needed to, you know, to go in and test. It wasn't like just throwing things together. There was definitely a plan and, and a, a set of steps to follow. Now you sound like a scientist, Rachel. You know, well, there is some science. I really think cooking is part art, part science. And a lot of people go in and they just throw things together and hope they come out right. But then they can't repeat their successes and they can't avoid, you know, having things not come out. So I really believe that really good cooks start to memorize the recipes and proportions and and steps that they use a lot. So then after a while it can look like they're winging it, but they're really following the blueprint that is now etched in their brain. Can you share stories that are memorable for you explaining how your recipes have changed people's lives? Absolutely. Uh, There was a graphic designer I worked with. She was a mother of two young children, and and I was in her home for a, a cooking party for one of her birthdays and with 10 of her closest friends. And what she said afterwards is that the suggestions that I provided her with gave her a more simplified method for preparing meals. And it, I really, she said, I really reinvigorated her love of cooking, and now she's shopping in a whole new way with more awareness. I've also had families I've worked with where, for example, a mother who had food intolerances used to have to cook two separate meals for her family. And after she took some of my classes, she wrote to me saying that her whole family enjoyed the recipes, even the kids, and now she didn't have to make two different meals. It was such a relief for her. Um, well, it's wonderful so how you're many helping other stories people. like that. Yeah, it's terrific. Um, I know you do a cooking coach blog. Uh, do you have people writing to you on that blog, or do you write to them? And uh, in other words, is it an interactive blog? How does that work? I would say there's an interactive element. I make posts about. It could be about a restaurant review or something I'm cooking or some new food I've, I've found and I'm experimenting with. And then there's a comment section. So people can actually email comments or any responses they have to posts that I have, and then I can respond back to them. But mainly it's I'm putting out the information, and then if they're intrigued by what I have to say, they will post a comment and and sometimes then that will stimulate something else that I put up on the blog. How do you set a standard against which no one can compete, which is a key component of my right-fit method? I would say I look at where I am with my knowledge, and, and I'm always open and interested in learning more. So I read a lot. I, I you know, I have a lot of friends who are involved in they they're involved with cooking maybe not professionally but they love to cook they love healthy foods and so I have a lot of people that I can actually talk to about cooking and nutrition and 
And by reading a lot and really reading with a critical eye for detail, I'm able to absorb a lot more information so that I can do more than just teach people how to cook, but also teach them how to cook with better health in mind and really pass on a lot of nutrition information that most cooking instructors or chefs don't have a firm grasp of. Can you expand upon that last point, Rachel, about why other people wouldn't have the same grasp as you do? I mean, what is unique about Rachel? I would say I'm a teacher first. One of the things I really got from my mother, she was an entrepreneur, a consultant. She taught business classes. She did writing. So she was a teacher, and she was someone that, you know, that really stood out, that I'm a, I'm a teacher first and then really a chef second. And, for example, if someone is a chef in a restaurant, that person can turn out great food, and that person could teach a class, but that person who is not a teacher probably won't be able to break things down into all the little steps. And that person might not think about what the novice cook would need to know about buying the food and where to store it and how long it keeps and and what benefits it has nutritionally. So by being a teacher and a chef and a cooking instructor, I can break the information down in a way that people can learn it, whereas the chef who's just good at it might not be as good at passing on the technology of how to do it. Tell us the story about Barry Sears and how you read his cookbooks and found some inaccuracies and what you did about that. Okay, well, when I first read Barry Sears' book, when he came out with uh, the first zone cook, the first zone book, and it was in uh, really nutrition, his, outlining his nutrition uh, approach and then some recipes in the back, but it was mostly a nutrition book. And as I read the book, I, I found factual errors, and I knew a lot about that because I was married to someone who was a nutritionist and, and very, very knowledgeable about about food and nutrition. And, and so I knew when I read that there were certain errors, and, and there were even errors that, because, for example, Barry Sears never followed a macrobiotic diet, so when he spoke about that, there were things that he said, and I thought, aha, that that that's something someone would say who hasn't actually practiced the diet and, and doesn't really understand all of the principles of it. And I thought, wow, he would want to know what those inaccuracies were so that he could correct them because I thought other people who are knowledgeable about nutrition who saw those might might not think of them as very credible if they saw and caught those same mistakes. So I made notes, you know, little flags in the book and, and then sent a letter to Barry Sears letting him know how much I liked his book and about these, these errors that I thought he would want to know about. And his right-hand man uh, contacted me, and we struck up a conversation and talked. And his, his uh, assistant is someone who had been involved in macrobiotics. So we had a rapport, and over time that built, and they were going to do a vegetarian zone cookbook. And so I was just right at the top of, of their radar for, for someone to, to, to do those recipes. So his right-hand man recommended me first, and 
then I got to get on the three-way call with Barry Sears. Well, I think it sounds very exciting, and I think this is another example of how you manage the process and take charge. Obviously, you weren't, um, let's say, shy about writing the letter and pointing out the mistakes. Am I correct, Rachel? Absolutely. I, I had no qualms about doing that. I just thought it's there. He, he would want to know about it and correct it, and I'm going to send it to him because I don't know if anyone else will. If you had not done that, if you had not asserted yourself, you would not have created the recipes for him. Right. I really think that was instrumental. And then I regularly sent articles to Barry and his assistant when I saw reviews of the Zone book and, and things that I thought they would want to see, you know, based on our conversations. And so, so I really became a familiar name to them. In essence, you developed a relationship. Yes. Let's go further. Let's talk about how you balance your professional and personal life. I know that in your situation, there's a strong relationship between the two. Tell us more about that. I would say there's a very thin line for me between my personal and professional life. And I'll say a thin line because most of the people who are my close friends are people that I have met through what I do for a living. They're people I've met through my cooking classes or you know, speaking engagements or shopping at the farmer's market for classes. Or They're just people I've met who, who share a passion for cooking, for great food, for nutrition, for you know, holistic lifestyle. And so some people evolve from being a cooking student or an assistant of mine to being good friends. And also a lot of what I do in my recreation really overlaps with what I do in my profession. Could you tell us more about that? Okay, well, for example, when I started my cooking blog, I thought, okay, I want to once a month review a restaurant and write about it. And I'll, I realized after several restaurant reviews that I need to go to each place at least two times and maybe three times. So the people who I asked to go with me for the restaurant reviewing are people who are good friends of mine who share that passion with me. So we can meet for a fun social time and do a restaurant review at the same time and talk about our lives and talk about the food and what we think of it and then exchange ideas afterwards as I'm writing the restaurant review. And also, I mean, you obviously have a good time when you're doing this. Oh, absolutely. It's very fun. I love it. I'm like, hey, I'm getting paid to eat lunch. Wonderful. <laughs> so to speak. Okay. Right off the lunch. <laughs> we can hear the passion in your voice when you share the evolution of Chef Rachel. For those people who have difficulty finding their passion, what advice do you have? I would say one of the most important things is look at what you enjoyed doing as a child. What were your hobbies? What did you like to do for fun? How, how did you play? Where did you play? What did you do? And, and then how can you take something you love to do and help solve problems that people have that they would pay you to solve because that's what they want? Well, I think that's excellent advice. Now, we're waiting for 
you to tell us about your new cookbook, The Ice Cream Cookbook, Dairy-Free Ice Cream Alternatives with Gluten-Free Cookies, Compotes, and Sauces. Well, that book evolved, again, out of my life experience, out of out of teaching classes and working with people, and I had an acquaintance who was trying to kick the sugar habit, and one of her in-laws gave her an ice cream maker for Christmas, and I thought, oh, no, she is in trouble now. And I told her, I'll bet I can come up with a delicious low-sugar ice cream that wouldn't upset your blood sugar level and would actually be really nourishing for you. And I borrowed her instruction manual, and I checked out some ice cream cookbooks from the library, and set apart, set out to make, I guess, the blueprints to create some master recipes, and and then I went into the kitchen and and made them with her. And this was probably almost ten years ago, maybe eight or ten years ago. And when I shared the recipes with some of my friends who were also cooking students, they rushed out and bought ice cream makers and and were so excited to make these things. And uh, so it was a process for me of making new recipes. And then eventually realizing that there's a huge need for uh, a dessert book that doesn't have all the refined sugar and also will help these people who have food allergies and intolerances who maybe can't eat wheat or gluten or dairy. And they still want to make great, great desserts for themselves and their family and friends. What are some of the ingredients that you use to make these delicious desserts? One of the key ingredients is coconut milk, and I use coconut milk, unsweetened, preservative-free coconut milk, as the base for the frozen desserts in place of milk and cream. And coconut milk actually has a lot of health benefits that people don't know about, so I expound upon those in the book and whenever I teach and sample the recipes. I also use an herb called stevia that's an alternative sweetener that comes from an herb, that has no calories and no carbohydrates, but it's not an artificial sweetener. Hmm. And I'm How? able to use that so that in conjunction with other ingredients so people get a sweet taste but without all the sugar calories. How can our listeners learn more and purchase the book if they would like, Rachel? They can go to thehealthycookingcoach.com or they can go to thegardenofeatingdiet.com, my blog and my website, and they can read more there and they can purchase the book right from the website and blog and find some other healthy tips. Good. Well, it's just been a pleasure today. Thank you so much for joining me. Clearly, you're an expert in creating blueprints of the Right Fit recipes. I hope that you will... Join me again soon for another stimulating conversation. I would love to. Thank you so much. The King of Pearls. Please join me again next Wednesday, March 11th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. My guest will be Jeremy Shepard, founder and president of PearlParadise.com, who built a niche Pearl website at the age of 26, which he turned into a $25 million online Pearl empire by the age of 33. The PearlParadise.com company has been profiled by the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, 
USA Today, and many other national publications. Two unique career contests. Barrow Global Search, Inc., of which I am the founder and CEO, is sponsoring two unique career contests. Here's a quick blurb of each contest. The first, searching for the right fit guest, not the best. Unemployed for six months or more, I'm searching for one right fit guest to coach on this radio show, Win Without Competing, who has not read my book. The second contest, did you read Win Without Competing? Use the right fit method and here you're hired, searching for the right fit guest. The winner of this contest will share on this show how using the right fit method was the tipping point to hearing you're hired. To read the blueprints of the right fit guests for both contests, visit the homepage of Dr. Barrow, that's drbarrow.com, my blog on Blogspot, or my blog on Blog Talk Radio. The deadline for your voicemail pitch. Oh, did I forget to mention that the contest application is a voicemail pitch? That due date for that pitch is Friday, April 17th. 2009 at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Barrow Global Search is offering Win Without Competing at the special price of $9.95. Win was nominated for a Business Book Award and published in two countries, in the United States by Capital Books and in India by Macmillan. To read excerpts from Win, visit winwithoutcompeting.com, and to purchase WIN, go to Book and click on Buy. You can buy WIN from Barrow Global Search, Inc., Amazon, Borders, Barnes & Noble, and other book dealers. I look forward to hearing from you. Please email me at drbarrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com, or call me directly, 310-441-5305. Remember this trigger tip. It's all up to you. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, and Career Coach One. I'm <laughs> sorry.